This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Some of us live with great psychological freedom, at ease and with joy. For many, however, it is not easy being human. In his latest work, Malcolm provides strategies using mindfulness to manage stress, anxiety, and depression, as well as ways to cultivate psychological well-being. Uniquely, it combines a traditional Buddhist approach to mindfulness with contemporary psychology and current perspectives. Drawing on the author's many years of clinical experience as a psychologist, as well as his personal experience in Buddhist meditation practices, it outlines how the Buddha's four applications of mindfulness can provide a pathway to psychological well-being, and how this can be used personally or with clinical populations. Malcolm introduces mindfulness as it is presented in Buddhist psychology and guides the reader through meditations in a systematic way. The practices are clearly explained and supported by relevant real-life stories. Being aware that mindfulness and meditation are simple but not easy, Huckster guides the reader from the basics of mindfulness and meditation through to the more refined aspects. He provides a variety of different exercises and guided meditations so that individuals are able to access what suits them. His book is aimed at anyone who wishes to use mindfulness practices for psychological freedom. It provides insight and clarity into the clinical and general applications of Buddhist mindfulness and will be of interest to mental health practitioners, students of mindfulness, professional mindfulness coaches and trainers, researchers and academics wishing to understand Buddhist mindfulness, and the general public. Valeria Tellez interviews Malcolm Huckster, the author of Healing the Heart and Mind with Mindfulness, Ancient Path, Present Moment. Malcolm is an Australian clinical psychologist and teacher of Buddhist meditation. He has been teaching mindfulness and related practices such as loving kindness and compassion to clinical populations, clinicians, and the public for nearly 30 years. Malcolm originally learned these practices as a Buddhist monk in Thailand in the late 1970s. Mal has written several mindfulness-based workbooks, published in psychology journals and magazines, and his greatest work, the book that we are discussing, was released in 2016. He works in private practice and regularly teaches on courses, workshops, and retreats. He is a loving partner, proud dad of three adult sons, and a doting granddad. 
He currently lives and practices on the north coast of New South Wales, Australia. Meet Malcolm at malhuckster.com. Here is the interview with Malcolm Huckster. In your own words, who is Malcolm Huckster? Ah, oh, Malcolm is a changing phenomenon. <laughs> <laughs> Malcolm is uh, the arising and passing of form, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. Mm. Wow. That's the way Buddhism talks about uh, our self. And when I look at myself, I, I think I have a particular characteristics and personality and so on, but it is all arising and passing. It's all kind of interdependent on a number of things. So it always changes. What is consciousness? Is that connected? Are consciousness thoughts? Well, there's, there's tomes written about consciousness. I mean, a lot of people write about consciousness and talk about consciousness. And uh, at its basics, as far as I understand, it is that which knows, that is the knowing quality of our, ourselves. That which we call ourselves. Uh, we have form, which is the body, uh, feelings, which are qualities of pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neither. Uh, we have perceptions, which is recognitions of things. And then we have mental formations, which is you know thinking and so on. Then we have consciousness, which is like the knowing of all that, that, that sense of, if we say uh, that feeling of self, it is in consciousness. <laughs> But actually, the self comes with all those, uh, uh, what they call khanda in, um, in Pali. It is this coming together of a whole range of experiences. But consciousness is that knowing. It's like the mirror. It's like that which is conscious of things, if that makes sense. Another question I don't ask too often is, do you think we chose to be here in the human body at this time? That's interesting because I think that things come about because of a whole range of things coming together, like uh, many things completely out of our control. But one thing we can control, one thing we can have some sort of say in, I suppose, is our choices. Like we choose, depending on what happens, we make a choice. We make an intention to do something or not do something. And so in many respects, I guess you could say we choose to be here, but it's not It's not like a conscious choice. It's just like the coming together of experiences in the past that have come together and presented a particular uh, possibility. And then we make a, a kind of an inclination to go towards that possibility depending upon the things that have happened in the past. So it's a choice in some respects. So yes, I guess it is a, a bit of a choice to be in a human body. <laughs> But, you know, I don't think it's a, a conscious choice for most people. Yeah, when we speak about uh, did we choose to be here? Did I choose to be here? And then you have to question the I. Who is the I that's choosing? Which is another yeah, interesting question to ask. It is. The I that is here choosing, I mean, there is, from a Buddhist perspective, there is no uh, independent autonomous I. But it doesn't mean that there isn't a, a sense of a continuum, uh, like a, a continuum of energy, a continuum of mental and physical phenomena. 
that uh, we normally call the eye because it's it's convenient to call it the eye, uh, and it, it's part of our conventional language and so on. But uh, there is, if you look at it, it, there's no single thing that goes through. There's no no. It's like this cause effect relationships of energy, if you want to think of it like that. It's just this continuum of experiencing an experience that comes through and we, for convenience sake, we call it an eye. But in fact, there's nothing solid and lasting there. That is a, a very complex topic to um, talk about, yet to have a conversation about, I guess, because so many of us believe in so many things and uh, we create this idea of an afterlife and surviving the body and existing, although the body is just services this reality, but there are so many. So we might be, perhaps I shouldn't get into this topic. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Different realities, you know. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's, um, it's about, I haven't died yet, so I'm not <laughs> I... completely certain about what happens with dying, <laughs> other than to say that I've, I've been living and dying moment to moment mm, right. throughout my whole, I'm nearly 65 years old now, so for the, that whole time, I've been living and dying every moment. It's like one moment arises, the next moment, uh, and it passes away, and then the next moment arises, and it passes away. So in many respects, I've been living and dying all this time. So we do know what happens after death. It's the result of the previous moment. Mm. <laughs> and then the next moment will be the result of this moment. Right. So there's uh-huh. this... Uh, one thing leading to another, leading to another. So there is a sense of knowing what happens after after death. So it is now what happens after death. What is freedom to you, Malcolm? What is to be free, finally? I think freedom is to not crave, not want, not grasp onto things. Because everything's changing, to the extent that we grasp onto things that change, to that extent we will have suffering. So if we let go of things that are changing and let them change, not grasp onto them and identify with them and become something around them, then that's freedom. That doesn't sound um, so easy to do or simple. No, no, it's very hard. hard. I'm certainly not. I still cling to things. I, I know that. I know that I cling to things because I know I still have suffering. In Pali, it's a term called dukkha. Uh, dukkha means an ill-fitting axle in a wheel. That's what it literally means. Duk means wrong and kat means wheel. And so dukkha means suffering. It's often translated as suffering, but it's probably best understood as unsatisfactoriness. When, when I was a monk many, many years ago, we used to do chanting. We used to do a lot of chanting and uh, we would regularly chant what Dukkha was, and it was difficulties associated with birth, aging, sickness, and death. Pain, that includes emotional pain, grief, lamentation, and despair. Not getting what you want, getting what you don't want, and being part of from that which is dear to you. And in fact, clinging to a sense of self that is lasting and permanent is Dukkha. That very clinging and holding on tightly. 
to a sense that I'm here and this is me and, you know, I am that and I am this. And, you know, to the extent that we cling to that, there is unsatisfactoriness. So this unsatisfactoriness goes from the gross right down to the very, very subtle. And I often make a, I often make a joke about this when I'm, um, it's not a joke, but I, I kind of make an example of this. The gross of, the gross, uh, end of the spectrum of dukkha is, uh, related to those really difficult experiences that we have when we're dying and, you know, when we lose someone, mm, yeah. uh, and we've got severe illness and so on. The gross stuff and the subtle stuff is that dissatisfaction about not getting our soy chai latte exactly how we want it. Can we still love and without attachment? Is that possible? Oh, absolutely. Look, I, um, I wrote something on this because uh, my son, him and his, my eldest son and his partner, had a pregnancy. And uh, they, after five months, they lost the child. And it was really, really distressing. I mean, uh, um, it was distressing for me and it was distressing for my son. And uh, I thought about this. Well, I didn't think about it much. I just experienced, uh, I experienced a lot of pain, of course, at the loss of uh, a potential grandchild. Because I have, I have five grandchildren at the moment. Yeah. And uh, so I, the thought of not having one of those grandchildren is really painful. And I also, uh, I've also had three sons. So I think it's the worst possible experience to lose a child because it's sort of so um, contrary to our biological, our biological programming, I suppose, because we're here to support our children. And I think about this and I remember how important it was to develop an attachment to my children in the psychological sense. Uh, you know, there's a whole, um, there's a whole science around attachment. There's a whole theory around attachment theory, which is, which means it's important that you love someone and it's important that those children know you love them. There's so many uh, things that are, um, related to that. Like the development of a human being relies on feeling love from their parent. So, you know, I made, I've made effort to love my children and know they love me. And it's the, it's the price I pay when I feel if I suffered from the loss of them, uh, it is the price I'm willing to pay because it's so important for me to have a sense of have that love for them, have them know that I, I love them and I care for them and I'm here to protect them and so on. So when we do experience the pain, which is heartbreaking, it tears our heart apart. It, it's, it's like a knife that goes into the heart. It's like a scar that we have. It's like a scar that we have in our heart. And it heals. And at first we can't do much. We can't function very well. Uh, but it does heal. But it's always there. It's like a scar that's always there. And we touch on it, it hurts. But, and I've had my, 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 uh, I've had siblings. I have, my brothers died and my parents died many, many years ago. And I, when I press on that scar of that wound in my heart, it hurts. But I'm okay with that. It's an honoring of their lives. It's a, I honor that pain and I deal with the pain and I work with it. And, 
it is just what it is. Uh, mm. It's the price I pay for the love that I have for my parents and my brother and uh, all things. So that's something about grief, I think. Uh, from what I hear from you, which is beautifully said, is that by honoring the pain that we chose to exchange for love, for attaching to somebody we love or that we wanted to be loved by us, that is not suffering in a way. No, it tra- actually it transforms it. It's um, it transform. It's a it's an attitude. It's a relationship to it. It's like the the. I mean, they talk about this in mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, and you know all the contemporary mindfulness-based approaches to therapy. It's about changing, say, with thoughts, for example, with cognitive behavioral therapy uh, back twenty or thirty years ago. Uh, the aim was to change the content of thoughts. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, so, but the contemporary approach, which incorporates mindfulness, and sometimes it used to be called the third wave therapies. Now it's not necessarily called that because it's so it's so broad. But uh, the aim is not to get rid of the thoughts or the emotions. It's not really, really about changing the content of your thoughts. It's about changing the relationship to one of openness and love, I suppose, or loving kindness or benevolence and compassion. And here, here, there is the freedom. It's not that we get rid of things, not that we stop living or we don't have people that we love. It's that we love and when we experience pain at the loss of that love, then we accept that. We honour that. We're open to it. Uh, we understand that, that the, where it's coming from and we have... Com- there's a kind of a natural compassion to that, like a self-compassion. So, yes, I think there's freedom in that. It's it's in the attitude and, and the relationship, and the freedom comes from not holding on to something but allowing an, an opening to it and bringing an open heart to that experience rather than a, a, a rigid, closed-off heart trying to stru- and struggling with things. It's letting go of the struggle, really. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I think that is freedom, yeah. It seems like the way you explain, of course, the Buddhist uh, philosophy, um, that's all about freedom, really, uh, liberation. To me, I interpret as unconditional love, although there are conditions, but uh, it's letting go of accepting those conditions too. Mm, yeah, look, I, I agree. I think, I mean, I, I try to love unconditionally, but, you know, I know that's, I'm, you know, I've got grandchildren, I'm in a relationship, I, I work and so on. I mean, I'm, I know that I, I'm partial to uh, some people more than others, but ideally, I think, yes, uh, I think love is understood in many different ways and right. often it's understood as lust and attachment and clinging and so on. From a Buddhist perspective, love is really relating to oneself and others with a, a quality of letting go, a quality of not clinging to outcomes or not clinging to expectations. It's just being completely present and open with oneself and others. Uh, and love is kind of articulated or demonstrated in four qualities in, in Buddhism anyway. Uh, these four qualities are warm benevolence, compassion, 
appreciative joy, sometimes called sympathetic joy or empathetic joy, but it's I, I like to call it appreciative joy, and equanimity. equanimity. Mm. So, so compassion, loving kindness, warm benevolence is this unconditional acceptance of things, seeing the beauty and, and the lovely qualities of things in yourself and experience and in others. And it's, um, it's an aspiration for happiness. Like a, it's a light, it's a light heart thing. Compassion is this um, sensitivity to suffering and the wish to alleviate it. So it's a, it's a different quality than loving kindness. But warm benevolence is also called metta or uh, loving kindness. It's usually called loving kindness. Um, but I call it benevolence because, you know, the word love has so many different connotations about it. So there's compassion, which is the sensitivity to suffering and a, a commitment to alleviate it. So these, at, at their pure ends, their genuine ends, these are unconditional. Appreciative joy is having the joy of witnessing and uh, realizing wholesome qualities, like seeing it in another or seeing it in oneself. Appreciating, it's like gratitude. It is, I think, gratitude and appreciative joy are sort of cousins and or almost the same thing. It's like this joy that arises, this heartfelt joy and openness that arises when you uh, see someone who has wonderful virtues, uh, lovely qualities, or they succeed in many things. And it's also that related to yourself. It's a sense of gratitude for yourself. Okay. It's an opening up to your own good qualities rather than denying these things or being cynical about them. We're just open to these qualities. And equanimity, equanimity is really cool and it's really needed. Equanimity is the balancing of all this. So equanimity is this steadiness and unshaken quality of mind. And in relationships, uh, there's a lot of many different ways of describing equanimity. But in relationships and in terms of love, it is the understanding that each and every individual is on their own life trajectory. That no, no matter what you do, you can't change that individual. They have to change from within themselves. So this is, it's a deep acceptance of the way we are and it's a deep acceptance of the way others are. And acceptance here means willingness to be with and experience things. So equanimity is the balancing component of all these Qualities. They actually balance each other. But that that whole, you know, loving kindness or warm benevolence, compassion, appreciative joy, equanimity is the manifestation of unconditional love. So I think I think you're right. I think I think it, well I, I think he said this. I think unconditional love is possible and it comes from an enlightened mind and it's the way we relate to ourselves and others when we no longer cling to anything, we're no longer holding on to things that can't be hold, held on to, including ourself, and we relate to the world. That's the way we relate to the world, others and ourselves. We relate with love and kindness, compassion, appreciative joy and equanimity, a kind of an unconditional love. So, the feeling that arises is really of liberation, though. Mm. For the practice of these qualities that you just mentioned that are connected to unconditional love. Yeah, it's um, knowing that knowing that you're free. Wow. 
Yeah, can I can I make a point on that? I mean, when you were talking about when you asked me about what the self is and so on earlier in the interview, I was talking from an insight perspective. You know, from an insight perspective, we can be free from uh, we can see the the realities of the nature of self, and it's from a Buddhist perspective, it's called anatta or not self, meaning that we're we're not this and we're not that. We're not limited by limited by a construct that we make about ourselves. Okay, so that's that's sort of insightful. It's kind of you could say it's intellectual in some respects, but it's more than intellectual. It's this seeing clearly. So we have freedom in that respect. But if we come to a, the other perspective, like if we come from a perspective of love, for example, like experiencing compassion, appreciate joy, equanimity, and metta or loving kindness. We have liberation from a heartfelt perspective. It's like we're manifesting it not necessarily through our insights, but through our experience of connection. So that's, I mean, it's a beautiful way of thinking about this, um, freedom from the heart. Coming from the heart and freedom within the heart, it's so, it's so lovely. So what was the inspiration and also the intention of writing your book, Healing the Heart and Mind with Mindfulness, Ancient Path, Present Moment? Mm. Oh, what's my intention? I think I, that, the, that healing the heart, that's, um, I actually started to write, I started running programs probably about 30 years ago. Well, not 30 years ago. Yeah, yes, 30 years ago. I, I was a psychologist, I've been a psychologist for 30 years. I started running programs and it started off with just awareness programs and it developed into uh, mindfulness programs and then it you know, included mindfulness from the four heart qualities, which are loving kindness and compassion and appreciatory and equanimity. And so I, every time I ran a group, I used to write some notes and then I kept writing and I kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So, <laughs> And when I uh, worked in community mental health services and I've worked in those services for like 20 years, I wrote particular programs for particular presentations, like I wrote programs for people with, suffering with bipolar disorder and people suffering with panic, people suffering with something called generalized anxiety disorder and depression and so on. So I kept writing these workbooks and then uh, I thought to, I thought these are really helpful, so let's publish them. And I realized that I had to, I couldn't publish all these workbooks because there's some, you know, I have about five or six of them or more. Uh, so I decided to write one book. And then as I was writing that book, it just got longer and longer and longer. So I split it in half. The first half is what healing the heart and mindfulness is about. Healing the heart and mind with mindfulness is about. And it's basically about the Buddhist approach to mindfulness. Uh, it describes something called the four establishments of mindfulness, which are body, feelings, mind, and phenomena, basically. So... Uh, I guess my motivation was to be able to share something that has given me great freedom. And that's been the motivation all along, probably the motivation to become a psychologist, because before I was a psychologist, I was a, a shatu, um, shatu massage therapist, you know, I was a body therapist. Uh, and it was always that this was in line with my uh, intentions of freedom. It was a way of sharing that freedom and the possibility of not only healing myself but others. So that's my intention with healing the heart and mind with mindfulness. 
And it's, it's just about one particular part of the Buddhist teachings and how it relates to common everyday mental health issues, primarily stress, anxiety and depression. And a lot of times I wonder, we use the word calm and peaceful. Do you somehow connect these two words to equanimity or they are completely different? Uh, I, well, I, I kind of mm, distinguish them slightly. Calm, calm is often used for uh, describing serenity meditations or shamatha or samatha meditations. Calm is this uh, quality of serenity or tranquility or uh, it usually arises from when our minds become collected and concentrated when we're cultivating samadhi and they settle on one thing and the mind just sort of settles and calms it becomes like uh, like a lake that's really clear and still and quiet so I would describe calm like that however the word peace would have calm in it but I think it's a there's a different nuances to it I would describe peace more along the lines of what happens when we wake up to the nature of things, uh, when we let go of clinging and we are free. And peace, peacefulness would be more aligned with equanimity. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so calm is very pleasant. Yeah. Equanimity <laughs> at its deepest levels is neither pleasant or unpleasant. It's just yeah. very, very peaceful. Yeah. It's just very, very clear and seeing things as they are it's supremely peaceful when you know the buddha talks about nirvana or nirvana from a pali a pali pali term is nirvana it is the ultimate peace supreme peace and it's it's interesting because when i when i talk to my clients i always ask them what they want by coming to see me <laughs> and you know if i mention the word peace or they mention the word peace i think oh yeah we can go somewhere here you know, we've got something to work with. You know, we can work with, with this a long time. <laughs> and, you know, it's something to aim for. So it's, yeah. it's a really good uh, calm and peace are, are, are wonderful qualities. And uh, But I think they're distinguished and there's different nuances about them. So I'd like you to make a comment about how do we let go, but at the same time, without giving up, that's... Oh, yeah. We need to have meaning in this life. Yeah, there's, um, I do think of, um, there's a couple of uh, psychological approaches uh, that talk about holding on to something but not grasping to it. And look, I'll give you a little example of something that um, a Buddhist monk told me when I was, uh, I was only, I was about 20, I think, uh, and I was staying at a monastery in Australia, actually, and I was staying at a Thai monastery, and it was a beautiful Laotian monk. He was talking about happiness and he said, happiness is like a butterfly. It kind of comes along and it lands in your hand and you can enjoy it. But if you grasp after it, you'll never catch it. Mm, <laughs> and yeah. if you and if the butterfly lands in your hand and you put your hands around it, you kill the butterfly. So that's a I think that's a good example of the pain and suffering related to grasping. And uh it doesn't mean we can't hold the butterfly in our hand and enjoy the beauty of it. So we're kind of holding it with openness, and it, you know, it's it's likely that it will fly away. But it, at that moment, we can be present with that butterfly. Yeah. 
Is that what you asked? I think you asked the difference between letting go and having goals and so on. So, yeah, I'll I'll come back to that, that having a goal, having a direction. In the Buddha's Eightfold Path, we have right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. These eight factors that work together that lead towards freedom. They're sometimes depicted as spokes on a wheel that turns. So they're connected, they're all interdependent, and they all work towards this. They roll towards ultimate freedom. Right intention. Right intention is really, really important. When we have a view on something, it's like we have an understanding of how, you know, how suffering works, even at a relative level, to the extent that we cling on to something, we see, to the extent we cling on to the idea that we should be going out with someone, for example. I mean, that's, that's not in my, uh, that's been a long, long time ago <laughs> in my yeah. But uh, to that extent that we cling on to that, we can see that to the extent that we cling on to it, uh, we have suffering. So we make an intention to do something different rather than we make an intention that when we have this inclination to cling on to something, you know, hold on to this idea that things should be going this way, then we just make a different intention. We let it go. We release, we kind of release the grasp. We kind of relax a little bit. It's like sitting back and letting it be. And then that follows through with our actions. So then we act in a way that's consistent with our right understanding and our good intentions. So we act with that body, mind, and speech, and in this case, uh, right speech, right action, right livelihood. Livelihood being the way we uh, occupy ourselves, the way we up, uh, have a living. We act in that way that is reflective of, of our intentions. So mm, we're, yeah. we're intending to act in a particular way, so we act in that way. Then we have the composure. When we, when we act in a way that's consistent with what we really value, what we really feel is a, an important life direction and is consistent with our intentions, then we have a mental composure that is able to put forth str- vigorous effort, like uh, courageous effort. Mm, Sometimes yeah. it's called courageous effort because it's like turning our attention, turning our energy to something that may be difficult. We may not want to do this. It may be unpleasant. We may not want to turn our attention to something. But it is called courageous for that in that respect. So when we when we have that mental composure, we turn our energy towards being mindful and then focusing, like mindfulness, meaning remembering to be present, remembering there's a lovely um, description of mindfulness, remembering to be attentive, uh, remembering to bring attention to uh, immediate experience with care and discernment. That's why we convert it. Lovely. Yeah. Fantastic. So remembering to be attentive, remembering to be aware, remembering to be attentive, and awareness and attention are slightly different, but there's this quality of remembering. And then when we do that, we kind of we can bring uh, we bring our attention together and it focuses, it's very clear, it's very deep, and then from that clarity of mind that that's the result of energy, mindfulness and concentration. Wisdom arises, insight mm. arises, mm. and then that leads to more intentions. So we we hold these we hold these intentions in in our we hold them in our mind, but we don't screw them up <laughs> by grasping. <laughs> <Right. laughs> you know, we don't we don't mess it up. <laughs> we don't hold on to it. 
in case you know we make mm-hmm. goals. Yeah, uh, goals mm-hmm. are just things in the service of our good intentions. What's most important is our intentions, is our direction, is our uh, you know our kind of compass for where we're going. And even if we don't, you know, we don't reach the goals we're we're intending to have. It doesn't matter because we're still on that right direction, mm. and we can be happy. So, look, I, I, I think that does that explain your that uh, question? That answer my question. Absolutely, and I love that. I love this practice. I love this idea. I love the concept. You have done so much work into this realm of understanding what life is about, <laughs> or how it works. For most of us that don't, uh, would you suggest practices like meditation, continue to do that and read books, your book for sure, but are there any other practices that you would recommend? Uh, well, yeah, there's uh, thousands of them. But <laughs> right. I guess the basic practice is to be present, is to be, to be present, you know. Yeah. Notice, notice the mind when it's, to be present is to be mindful, for example. That's the most uh, elementary part. To be present, uh, to understand, to create good intentions, to live an ethical life, uh, to live a life that's not screwing things up, you know, it's not making more of a mess of things. I live a life of non-harming and um, harmlessness and letting go and goodwill, like uh, living these uh, living a life of a good life and then cultivating a mind. Now, cultivating a mind, it, that's what meditation is about. Bhavana is the term in Pali. It means to bring into being, uh, to cultivate. So what we do is we cultivate serenity and insight. And with serenity and insight, um, wisdom arises. So this, I think just to live a life of, kindness, live a life of compassion, um, to be present, to savour experience without holding on to it, to inquire into life, to see the way things are impermanent, things that are not, not necessarily, things are interdependent and things are not necessarily, um, that which we cling to is not going to be a source of happiness yeah, and letting go is a source of freedom. So I think just Living a life like that, I mean, just being present with compassion and kindness and uh, with wisdom is the practice. Once we're there, uh, having this wisdom, uh, applying these uh, components, understanding, kindness, compassion, could we still be drawn to negative emotions and from time to time still experience some of these emotions that a lot of times we judge them as not being enlightened. Yeah, well, look, I think um, I mean there's a bit of controversy about this. Um, I was at a I was at a conference once when there was a disagreement about uh, various emotions that enlightened beings can have. But I, in my view, I think it's natural to have emotions. We have emotions because they have a function. Sometimes the emotions can become unbalanced and their function can get distorted. Like, for example, fear can be distorted into anxiety. Sadness can be distorted into depression. And, you know, we can we can get caught up in struggling with emotions and they're causing a lot of pain. 
the thing about that is to realize that these emotions are just natural arising. They're just the way we respond to experience. They're conditioned from our human, human genome, I suppose, like they're genetically wired in us and to not cling to them as being myself, to see them as they are so that rather than them mastering us, rather than we being the slave to our emotions, we, are, they, we use them as vehicles to help us do what we do as humans. Mm, um, yeah. We need emotions and we use them and uh, we don't need, to, don't need to cling on to them as identi- and identify with them as being ourselves. So that's what I'd say about emotion. I like that, yeah, because that it's very good because that also removes that uh, expectation to be perfect, to try oh, to reach yeah. a destination and stay there because that wouldn't be life itself. No, <laughs> it no, wouldn't no. be natural. <laughs> no, it, it, we don't. When we have an emotion, it's just an emotion. It's just an arising and passing of something. The problem comes when we identify with it and we take it on as being who and what we are. I think that's called conceit. <laughs> that's a whole that's a whole dominant interview talking about conceit, what that is in, in Buddhism. But it's called it's called conceit. Conceit. <laughs> and then for some of us would be addiction, <laughs> obsession <laughs> with something, uh, thought patterns, right, and behaviors. So I have a few more questions for you. Those are the ending questions. Would you like to add anything or read a passage in your book? Oh, I haven't got a passage ready, but if um, I can find some, I suppose. Let me see. The insight and serenity aspects of meditation support and strengthen each other and cannot be separated. Insight meditation requires concentration to ensure depth and awareness, and serenity meditation requires mindfulness to monitor and sustain concentration. The insight and serenity aspects of meditation can be considered as two ends of a stick, when someone picks up one end of the stick, the other end follows. So insight and serenity are like us inseparable as opposite ends of meditation spectrums. So basically what I'm saying here is they work together. Insight is mostly based on, is, is about seeing clearly. Serenity is about developing a clear and tranquil mind. So they work together, they support each other, and together they cultivate wisdom. And wisdom is the freedom. Mm. Wisdom has with it compassion. If you knew you would die soon, meaning losing the body, would you make any change in your life or do anything in a different way? I do this meditation every day. <laughs> you do? <laughs> I do. Uh, well, most days I, <laughs> I contemplate death. Uh, most days. Wow. And sometimes it's, um, I think about it as my next breath. In my next breath, I could die. So what do I do? I let go. Mm. No, no, I wouldn't do anything different. I'd be continuing to endeavor to let go and watch when my the hindrances to uh, awakening arise and endeavor to let go and also to cultivate the wholesome. So it's nothing different. I think I will be practicing to cultivate the wholesome and release the unwholesome. And my last question is, what are three things about life you know for sure as of now? (laughs) Life is impermanent. Life is interdependent. 
And to the extent that we cling to life, to that extent we suffer. Thank you so much for your wisdom, your beautiful, peaceful presence, your purpose and for this reality. Thank you. Thank you. My hands are going together and I'm giving you a bow. Thank you, Marco. I do have one more question, but this is a technical one. Where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services and future projects? Okay, so I've got a website, malhakta.com. Uh, or uh, I was I'm also on Insight Timer. Mm, that's about it, I think. I mean, I, you could email me if you want, but uh, my email's available on my website. Yeah, there may be other things in the future. People keep trying to get me onto um, applications and things, but I I never get around to it. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I, I don't I I've run out of time to put things on Insight Timer. <laughs> I often put things up on there. Oh, and I've got a I've got a YouTube channel. Mm, yeah. YouTube channel is Mal Huckster Clinical Psychologist. Wonderful. And uh, there's quite a few talks on there. But they're hour long talks. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, they're better when they're short because uh, more people are willing to listen to them. They don't want to put aside an hour. They can have more happy to put aside thirty minutes or something. Yeah, it's good to have them either way, right? It's always a very good thing to do. I'll have the links too on your podcast profile. So all those links will be there. Thank you so much again, Malcolm, and we'll talk soon. Yeah. Bye for now. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Malcolm Huckster and his works, please visit malhuckster.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.